0: absolutely right, Christian. This is the HD Lockdown Pod, uh, Episode 8. I'm Mr Eichelstam, and I'm pleased to say that I'm joined in the virtual HD Lockdown Pod studio by Mr Lawton. How are you doing, sir?
1: Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you?
0: Yeah, you know, reasonably well, reasonably well. Have you um, been up to anything interesting in the last few days since we spoke?
1: It's been absolutely roasting, and I've been doing the usual... Um absorption of tv and media worked my way through uh, the tv series fleabag this week Uh, very good i've never seen it before but it was a quality piece of comedy and um yeah i've uh, read a book and uh Coincidentally, in the same week as Mental Health uh, Awareness Week, called "Mangxiety," it was very interesting indeed. Written by uh, the prominent journalist Dylan Jones. Uh, some of you may know he's done lots of like lifestyle magazines. Yeah, it's been quite good. In it, somehow had a resurgence with churches, heralding from uh, your lands, uh, Mr. Patterson, I believe.
0: Churches, yeah,
1: very good indeed. Very Church
0: good. Churches.
1: Yes, that one. Yes, Pronoun- pronounced churches, though I believe. But yeah.
0: Uh, have I missed something here? But a band so ah uh, right I say sorry yeah. I, I haven't listened to any new music in about in about 16 years
1: all <laughs> oh, right bless you <laughs>
0: um Mr. De Salvo how are you keeping
2: yeah I'm good thank you I um celebrated my um 37th birthday last Saturday um so yeah I had some really lovely lovely food and uh yeah, um, I was cooked for. It was just really, really sweet, and I had a good weekend. Uh, but I did mix some drinks, and because I'm not normally a drinker, um, I wasn't feeling very, you know, <laughs> and what's the word? Productive on uh, Sunday. But uh, yeah, I embrace your tradition of drinking pims in the summer. So, oh yeah, good,
0: you're, you're entitled to a weekend uh, during the lockdown. And of course, I extend, uh, you know, again, happy birthday. Did the postman arrive? Mm,
2: nope, sorry, your cheque still hasn't arrived.
0: Really? I'll have to, I'll have to, I'll have to get <laughs> on to it. Then because, um, yeah, that £5 postal order that you were uh, for your birthday is, 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 is but, way, way to you. Um, <laughs> no, a couple of people have asked me, though,
2: and I have not received anything from them either. So I think something is going a bit slower with your usual, very effective yeah. Royal Mail system. <laughs>
0: That is very disappointing, but so uh, happy birthday again anyway. Thank, and maybe you. I, thank and maybe, you. And maybe, normally it's I was asking you to sing, but maybe later on in the show I can persuade uh, Mr. Lawton and Mr. Patterson to give a little bit of a
3: sing-song. Patterson, how are you? What have you been up to? Uh, yeah, not bad, thank you. Uh, well, I'm sure, like the three of you, I've been inundated um, with emails saying thank you, given that it's National Thank a Teacher Day. Um, I've had literally one email um saying thank you which was very nicely received from my mum um but other than that not much just yeah, hanging out had about as many emails as mr de
0: has had cards through the post i think I've, I've had one one thank you today and it came from basically mr simons inadvertently uh, requesting that people get involved in the hd lockdown quiz which i suppose we can jump to now uh, mr lawton tell us uh, more about the quiz and what we can expect
1: Yeah, we had a great one last weekend. Uh, Mr. Simons, though, seemed to have the upper hand on many people taking uh, quite a big lead that he couldn't get, that nobody could claw back. Uh, But the top five did include some previous champions. So that means that we've now had a champion from year 11, uh, from year 10, year 13, and a teacher. Also, we're missing now is a year 12 to win, and that will complete a nice little... um, collection of champions over the past five weeks so uh, this weekend we'll be carrying on the tradition seven o'clock um sunday evening we'll have another quiz going on if you've got any suggestions for uh, rounds that you'd like or any other things that you'd want us to put in there please do say so and send it through
0: um so yes uh, as well as enjoying the weather this week uh, you'll be listening on the show to the following bits and pieces we've got mysterious country coming up as ever um, potentially seven clues three countries to try and decipher. Uh, in the history section this week Mr. Patterson will be talking through um, giving essentially a bit of a brief overview of the Stuart Kings of Scotland. There's a tiny bit of a taster um, for the A-level history course for students maybe going in from from year 11 into year 12 next year but it's full of uh, gory and grisly deaths I believe Mr. Patterson. so it's, uh, it's good fun anyway. Um, the and uh, also geography corner as well. We'll be talking about explosive Africa. I'm intrigued by the title alone. Um, After and no, last
1: I, week's um, absolute massacring of the title, I thought I'd give it a, a more spicy name
0: for you. I mean, it, it, I must admit, explosive Africa does sound, on the face of it, more interesting than sustainable development. Um, and uh, in the 90 second challenge, uh, Mr. De Salvo uh, will be spending 90 seconds talking about anthropogenic climate change. I think I pronounced that right. I hope so. And uh, also language liaisons will be spending some time talking about French and Spanish movies that you should maybe watch um, during the half term or just basically when you're, you know, uh, sat on your sofa during the lockdown. Um, Okay, so I think that brings us to the end of part one. We'll be back in just a few moments with part two. Okay, welcome back to part two. It is the quiz that we all wait for every day of the week. It is Mysterious Country.
1: I'm using random data, using varied data. all oh, random facts, don't judge me. You can guess it when it's your time. I said, ooh, mysterious country. No, I can't stop until you are right. Welcome back to Mysterious Country, guys. Uh, another week, another round. Uh, we've got Mr. Patterson going for the uh, 3 Peter, I believe. He's going for the Michael Jordan first one, while they were still young, before the retirement and space jam. Um, for those of you who have been watching the last... It's absolutely fantastic series. Get involved, get involved. Um, so um, we're going to have this week like we have every other week. Uh, we're going to have three mysterious countries. We're going to have um, clues. and The teachers are going to have the opportunity to guess as to which mysterious country it is. Without further ado, let's get straight into it. Uh, and we welcome back Mr. DeSalvo as well, uh, dodging the bullet last week. Uh, so mysterious country number one, clue number one. Um, the population of this country is extremely similar to the UK. Des. Salvo. Egypt. Incorrect.
0: Like.
3: Italy. Michael Incorrect. Pat. Uh, Republic of Ireland.
1: Incorrect. And we had it only the other week, and it was a population of around 5 million. Uh. Uh, number two... <laughs> In this country, you can marry a dead person. Pat. Pat.
3: Hey. Uh, Argentina. Incorrect. Ike. Mexico.
1: Incorrect.
0: They like the day of the dead, don't they?
1: A date yes. with, of the dead.
0: Date with the dead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on. Um, in this this country, has seen the shortest ever reign of a monarch, with only twenty minutes the position being held for. The historian stumped here. I'm surprised. Des De Salvo. France. Desalvo wins. Oh, oh yes.: uh, minutes. Minutes. yeah, L- Louis the nineteenth. Twenty minutes. Uh, I assume it's nineteenth X one X. I went the 19th, yeah, uh, brilliant. Um, the other clues are going to be the most visited museum in the world in 2014 with the Louvre or the Louvre, if you go with the French pronunciation instead. So the French were the first to use camouflage in World War I. They have their busiest railway in Europe with the Guardian North, and they have 30,000 tonnes of snails a year. Uh, right, so country number two. Uh, the name of this country means people living in open fields. Des. Dusarva. Greenland. Incorrect.
0: I Turkmenistan.
1: Incorrect. Uh, remember, I stand uh, means country. We've uh, come across it before. Yeah. Uh, uh, number two. Uh, this country hosts the world's biggest castle. Pat. Patterson. In Ukraine. Incorrect. Des. De Salva. Germany. Incorrect.
0: Ike. China? Ike.
1: Incorrect. The last name of people in this country changes dependent on the sex of the person. Des. DeSalvo. Greece. Incorrect.
0: Ike. It's, it's not Iceland, is it? No.
1: They do in Iceland, but you're incorrect for this round. Right, per- Paterson. Paterson.
3: Finland. Incorrect. That'd be land of the Finns, wouldn't (laughs) it?
1: Indeed. Uh number four. This is well one of the major homes of Europe's heaviest animal, the bison. The European bison that is. Das. Um Belarus. Incorrect. Good guess though.
0: Yeah. I was yeah, um Ike. It's not this, because this is what, not what the name means, I'm sure, but it can't be Poland, can it? Because, like, the land of the Poles, again, that stuff. It's not Poland. Um,
1: uh, Poland is the correct answer. Agstin <laughs> wins. Still... Yes. Because,
0: uh, is it a big uh, Vavil Castle in, in Krakow?
1: Uh, it's uh, Malbork, I believe is the name of it. Yeah, and um, uh, um, it, it often gets confused with the Czech Republic's um, castle because that's split over several sites. This is one castle in its own right
0: so is poland then the name like an anglicized are they like called polska or something like what, what is it called? yeah um
1: yeah yeah definitely yeah and i also think um like land of the poles well land is at the end uh, the po obviously means something whether it means open i don't know uh, right. there. uh and obviously ski scar at the end of names and things like that and um, all tv films uh and uh english films and Spanish films are dubbed by one man in Poland. Uh, he reads out the words for children, uh, women, and uh, men as well. Uh, so, <laughs> dubbed by only one person. The currency is the zloty. Uh, and that was your, your final clue there. Um, so, uh, on to our final round with Patterson trailing with a zero-one-one drawing lead for Eichlister and DeSalvo. So, i um, the capital city of this country is technically sinking.
3: Pat, like, oh. Pakistan, um, the Netherlands.
1: <sighs> incorrect. Ike, I custom, Mexico. I custom wins. Yes, uh Mexico City is based upon a sand pit, pretty much it's unconsolidated materials, and if they were to have an earthquake, they would have massive liquefaction, causing the land to turn almost to a liquid state, and buildings would sink um It's the oldest city, uh, this country has the oldest city Mexico does uh, on the continent, which has the world's smallest volcano. Um, despite strong Catholic connections, it's actually openly embraced homosexuality, with um, same-sex marriages being allowed for many years now. Indeed, oh, the first place ever named here by Spanish conquerors uh, was actually due to a misunderstanding. They asked what the place was called, and they said the name in um Mayan, would it have been, or Inca, or whatever it was? Yeah, the indigenous people's language, and uh, they actually said, I don't understand you, and the Spanish went on calling that place I don't understand you, but that's a called Yucatan, I think it is.
0: Yucatan.
1: Yeah, Yucatan, there you go. uh, Chihuahua dogs originate from uh, this country and it's a home of the tequila. Yeah, thank you very much and well done to Mr. Ickleston stopping the repeat of uh, Mr. Patterson, his fourth title now, and Ickleston retains the crown from uh, many weeks ago.
0: Yeah, thank you very much, Mr. Lawton, and uh, commiserations to uh, my noble competitors. And that brings us to the conclusion of another game of Mysterious Country
1: mysterious country. No, I can't stop until you are right.
0: Okay, that brings us to the end of part two. We'll return in just a few seconds with part three. All right, then. Welcome back to part three. It's the history section. And this time, Mr. Patterson is going to give us all a little bit of a taster uh, for the uh, A-level history course at BOA. So for those students who may well be considering taking A-level history next year, this is just kind of a precursor to the kind of stuff uh, you may well end up studying. Mr Patterson.
3: Yeah, so in A-level, um, we, or at least with me, you look at uh, the English Civil War, also known as the War of the Three Kingdoms, and that involves um, Charles the First mostly, um, but it's all heavily influenced by James the first or James the first of England um, and James the sixth of Scotland so I thought as a bit of an introduction James is this um, I've spoken about it before how much I love the Stuarts James is this incredibly kind of interesting man but he's sort of like um, a culmination of all the King Jameses that came before so today we're going to look at them um, from James the first right up the way through to James the fifth who we have spoke about on this podcast a little bit before um, so it's quite a long stretch of history. So this is a bit of a flying kind of tour of Scottish history. Um, but if anyone is interested, um, well, hopefully you are, if you're listening to it, um, feel free to ask me any questions in any possible sort of documentaries or anything if you did want to learn more. Um, so we'll start with James I. He's not technically the first Stuart King. That's his dad, Robert um, Robert II. But James is, for me, the first proper Stuart King in that he is just ridiculous in every sense. So Robert becomes king age 12. Um, but unfortunately for him, just a few months earlier, he's captured by English pirates and sent to London um, to, under the sort of care of Henry IV. So the English king basically kidnaps him at the age of 12. A few months later, he's made king of Scotland. This is a big problem for the Scots because the English, the old enemy, their traditional kind of um, rivals, have their king. And the idea is, at some point, Scotland will pay a ransom and get the king back. Unfortunately for James, um, the men in charge of Scotland, his cousins, um, the uh, Dukes of Albany, or kind of his royal family, they don't care about the king. So they just refuse to pay the ransom. So poor wee James spends about 18 years in English captivity so he's ran sort of um, held prisoner by the English. Now it's actually all right and he ends up being quite good friends with King Henry of England um, and they end up getting on quite well but this annoys him obviously that it takes his kind of countrymen, his subjects, 18 years to finally pay England to get him back. Now eventually they do, eventually the Dukes of Albany sort of can't get away with not doing it anymore. It's getting embarrassing. It's embarrassing for all the other European countries watching Scotland not have a king and the people of Scotland want their king back. So eventually the Dukes of Albany have to get, have to sort of pay the money. Um, They agree to pay in four or five big installments, they only ever pay one or two and because by that stage James has been released. So James comes back to Scotland and very quickly kind of you see a very early sort of Stuart personality trait. Um, He gets revenge. He has the Dukes of Albany killed, has all their land taken off them, and pretty brutally kind of crushes them. And from that point on, he becomes this really energetic king. He sort of wants to make up for lost time. Um, he manages to kind of expand Scottish borders, take over some of the islands. He's able to try and get the Scottish noblemen under, their, under his control. But in doing this, he really annoys another one of his cousins, another one of his relatives, uh, the Earl of Athol, who is also known fantastically as the Great Serpent. Now, he controls a massive part of the sort of central belt of Scotland. Um, so he's a really powerful nobleman. He's quite an old man at this point, Um, but he begins to really hate King James. Now his grandsons end up murdering the king. King James is assassinated. They um, burst into his sort of um, palace in Perth. James manages to escape into a sewer. By this stage he's quite an old man, quite a fat man, he rushes down this sewer, but unfortunately for him, he's had the sewer blocked off because he keeps losing tennis balls down it. So he can't get out of the sewer. Turns round and the Earl of Athol's grandsons stabbing to death, basically. Murdered in his own sewers. A um, bit of a sort of ignominious end for King James the But his wife, who's always known as the gentle, I think her name was Joan, gentle Joan, but she was the gentle queen Um, She ends up torturing the two men that actually kill him to death. She is brutally tortured to death. And the Earl of Athol, the man behind it all, the Great Serpent, um, he is crowned, but crowned with a molten hot metal crown that they force onto his head. So very sort of Game of Thrones-y. I I was just going to say,
0: I was literally going to take the words out of my mouth, that this feels incredibly uh, westeros sort of style in the kind of the machinations the way in which these people are dispatched and disposed
3: of and also if you're going to call her the gentle queen
0: what are the rest of the queens like?
3: Well exactly, Um, if you think that's Game of Thrones wait until James II who we're about to talk about. Um, So James II takes over from his dad after his dad is brutally murdered in a sewer Um, and he's only seven years old and this is another kind of thing you will see repeated. Stuart Kings, especially the King Jameses, Tend to become kings very young. Um, so James II becomes king at the age of seven, and he is completely dominated by the Douglas clan, a very powerful clan in Scotland, the Douglases. Um, obviously, he's seven years old, so he can't make the decisions himself. But the Douglases um, really take control. At one stage, they kidnap him for a few years, and it's not until he's about 10 years old that he's able to sort of escape the Douglases. Now, the Douglases are split into two. There's the Black Douglases and the Red Douglases, but they're all part of the same kind of big, powerful clan. And it's under James II you get a thing called the Black Dinner, which again is incredibly Game of thrones I I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but if you've not seen it by now, you're not going to watch it. Are you? James is about 10 years old, James II, and he invites um, the heads of the Douglas clan, who are two twins, who are both about 16, Um, he invites them to dinner with him. They come to dinner, they're all sat there, it's apparently a very pleasant dinner, a very nice dinner, and then at some point a black bull's head is brought out and put in front of the young um, Earl of Douglas and that is the sign. Um, Black bull is apparently the sort of symbol of death in the borders. Um, The two Douglases are dragged out of the dining room while the young ten-year-old king watches and given a trial and then executed in the sort of garden of um, Stirling Castle. It's known as the Black Dinner in Scotland. Um, Now, obviously, King James is only about 10 years old, so a lot of people blame one of his big advisors, um, Walter Crichton, but we can't let him get off the hook too much because a few years later, when James is about 15 and sort of starting to take control, he murders another Earl of Douglas. Again, he invites him over for dinner. They're sat there having dinner in Stirling Castle this time. Um, James pulls out a knife, stabs him in the throat, throws him out a window, and then his servants stab him about 26 times before cutting his head off, apparently. So, so, so one, one Douglas was invited, well, they invited
0: the twins over and they killed, James essentially was responsible, even though he was 10, for killing these twins. Yeah. Yep. And then another Douglas is invited to dinner with the same king a bit later. Correct, and he kills him as well.
3: Yeah, I guess they assumed that it was well, it wasn't James that killed them; it was his advisors. And then by this stage, they think, "Oh, we can trust James." Nope. I mean, I you think I've thought twice about the uh, the dinner invite um, before yeah. I send my RSVP. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is why I love the shirts; they are ridiculous. Um. So James II. He he ends up doing all right. Um. After he's killed the Douglases, he's kind of proven that he's a sort of strong king. Um, And we spoke about this before, but Scottish noblemen kind of respect strength. You have to prove yourself as a Scottish king by kind of destroying the Douglas clan, um, or at least in the short term, they come back into the story. He proves that he's quite a good king. However, um, James II dies probably the most embarrassing death out of all the Jameses. He is attacking Roxborough Castle, which is a big castle in the borders. He's going to war with the English, always a popular move in Scotland. Um, And his wife comes to visit them at the battlefield. And James um, decides, oh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to fire all my cannons. That'll really impress her. Um, So he fires all the cannons. He stood next to his favourite cannon known as the lion, um, which promptly explodes and shreds his leg. um, And then he dies a few days later of the wounds. So he basically kills himself. Um, Cool little tip to that. Scotland end up taking Roxborough Castle and there was always a myth that only a dead man could capture Roxborough Castle. So James II ends up kind of doing that. He lives that myth. He is the dead man that takes the castle. Again, a King James dies, a sort of early death, an unexpected death. King James II, he's probably going to be a good king, but he dies in this incredibly embarrassing way and he's only kind of remembered for the Douglas thing and then the blowing himself up thing um his son james Third becomes king aged eight and he is the first of the kind of renaissance kings of scotland so james iii is really into music he's really into poetry he really loves like language and writing and all this kind of stuff he's very sort of european um but because of this he's seen as not being manly enough to be king and lots of scottish people really resent him because he's so into art rather than into war now just to make this even worse, he really likes the English and does everything he can to be as friendly with the kings of England as he possibly can. And again, if you want to be a king of Scotland, you kind of have to go to war with England. Um, it's, it's the way to be popular. Now James III is quite tragic actually. He ends up um, being killed by his own son. Um, so the future James IV, his own son, ends up going to war with his dad. Um, it's kind of a rebellion, and eventually at the Battle of Socky Burn, um James III loses, his son kind of wins the battle, and then James III dies afterwards. Now no one knows if he dies of wounds or if he is assassinated on his son's orders, or no one knows. All we do know is that when he dies, He's replaced by the rebellious son, the son that went to war with his own dad, James IV. So already he becomes king and he's just fought a war against his dad. Uh, He might have had his dad murdered. Amazingly, he's still only 15 when he becomes king. So people kind of are men much earlier in the Middle Ages. Um, And despite this kind of slightly uh, suspect or suspicious start to his reign, James IV actually turns out to be a really good king. Early doors, he goes to war with England, makes himself nice and popular. Um, In the end, he signs a peace treaty with the English, and he actually marries Margaret Tudor, the daughter of Henry VII and the sister of Henry VIII, which is quite important um, in the Elizabethan course later on. Um, So he kind of gets that the war with England out of his out of his system fairly early. And from that point on, he um, is really kind of into culture, just like his dad. It's just he's shown that he's a man by going to war. Now the people of Scotland will sort of let him be all cultural. So he um, opens unis in Scotland. He pays artists. He um, kind of pays musicians. He has a court of um, Italian musicians that follow him everywhere. Um, he's also really into science. Um, there's a guy, I think his name's John Dumbarton, who tries to fly off Stirling Castle in a, a man made flying machine, um, which obviously fails. Um, and then he also, James IV, um, conducts this language experiment, which nowadays is seen as being really cruel. Um, but it's interesting that he was thinking about this. He had two children from birth, took them away from their mother, um, and put them on an empty island with a mute woman, so a woman who couldn't talk to look after them, and he just wanted to see what would happen with language. He wanted to see if what they would speak. Would they just speak English? Would they speak some other made up language? Would they not speak at all? I don't actually know what the outcome of this experiment was, <laughs> unfortunately, um, but it's it's interesting that this is a king that's kind of trying to learn more about the world. So again, you see this kind of aspect of the Stuarts. They're, they are interested in knowing things. They are they're not just about fighting. They're not just about whatever. They're kind of intellectuals. Any chance you could find out? Uh, sure. All right, because I'm desperate to find out what happened to these kids on the island with the mute woman. Um, well, so apparently. Um, <laughs> The results of the experiment, people don't really know what happened. I've done a quick Google here. Um, some people say that the two kids just naturally began to speak Hebrew, uh, but that is widely doubted by most people. Um, other sort of observants said that they were mute. They came out not speaking a word. Um, so there you have it. Either somehow developed perfect Hebrew or didn't learn to speak at all. I mean, if we had a Twitter page, it would be the Twitter poll this week.
0: Hebrew or mute? What do you think? You decide.
3: (laughs) He'd get in trouble though. (laughs) Possibly. Unfortunately for James, um, he decides to go to war with England again. Um, By this stage, Henry VIII is king in England. Henry is fighting in France. The French kings ask James, could you attack England? James says, sure thing. And you have the Battle of Flodden, one of England's greatest ever victories over Scotland, absolutely crushes Scotland, kills loads of the noblemen, thousands and thousands of soldiers, and importantly, James the fourth. Um, so he dies in battle with the English. Um, apparently the English army is sort of, kind of led by Catherine of Aragon, and she wants to have his head cut off and um, it kind of pickled and sent to Henry VIII in France. Um, but she's convinced not to do this, because he is a king after all. Um, And that leaves James V, who is one year old. So again, a really young king. And James V kind of spends most of his childhood absolutely terrified of being assassinated. Um, He is, again, kidnapped by the Douglases, just like one of the previous Jameses. And he kind of grows up to be this um, slightly odd man. He's known as the King of the Commons. So he used to dress up as a farmer and travel around Scotland just talking to people as a farmer apparently and um, he loved doing things like woodwork and these kind of things that were seen as being like common things to do fishing and stuff like that he was the king of the commons. Um, he himself though again was quite a sort of cultured man he was apparently a very good singer he wrote some of his own songs he wrote some of his own plays Um And he was a historian as well. He kind of commissioned some early histories of Scotland and things like that. So again, this kind of intellectual, slightly odd, but an intellectual nonetheless. Um, Now, unfortunately for James V, he is also killed in a battle with the English, the Battle of Solway uh, Solway Moss. Now, no one really knows how he died. The, The traditional story is that Scotland lose the battle and James dies of grief. He's just so upset that they've lost that he collapses and dies. Now, probably not true. Um, most historians think he died of some kind of fever, um, like cholera or something like that, some sort of disease, that one of these diseases that just run through armies in the Middle Ages um, or the medieval period. But s- oh, there are some people that say he might have been murdered, might have been assassinated. Um, but importantly, James V finds out just before he dies that his wife has had a daughter and that daughter is Mary Queen of Scots. Now apparently he said, he made a prediction, he said it can while lass, and it will gang while lass. So it came with a woman, the first ever Stuart monarch was a queen, she married into the Scottish royal family, so it came with a woman and it will go with a woman. Um, So he predicted that his daughter, Mary Queen of Scots, would be the last Stuart Queen, the last Stuart monarch. Um, He was wrong, In the sense that it wasn't Mary, um, but he was right in that the last Stuart monarch was a woman, Queen Anne. Um, So James V, an intellectual, the king of the commons and maybe also a bit of a soothsayer, maybe he could see the future. Um, But that's it, after that you get Mary Queen of Scots and then you get James VI who becomes James I of England and that is the start of our A-level course.
1: I just uh, want, wanted to ask a few uh, layman questions. Uh, first one: Why why was it embarrassing that Scotland didn't have a monarch? Um, yep. Like, why, why did all the other like aristocracy, all the other wealthy people, all the other people that like reigned over with terror over their people uh, find it embarrassing that one area didn't have a monarch?
3: Well, it's not so much that they didn't have a monarch; it's more that they had a monarch who is. Was being held prisoner by another country. That ah. was the kind of embarrassing bit, yeah. Ah.
0: Um, What's the pride of a country, I guess? Is the prestige,
3: perhaps? it's like. Yeah. Why did
1: the other places care? Because they're all family, because they're all related?
3: Uh, partially because they're all related, and more it's just, you know, it's like a, a little clique, isn't it? All the kings and queens, they all marry each other, they all know each other, they all mm. whisper behind each other's backs.
1: Yeah, I thought it was um, like... Especially pertinent for Scotland, because my, my, my other question is about, in Scotland, you've got all the clans, you've got all the, the gangs, you've got all the people who are the top dogs. I mean, you've got the McDonald's, the Douglases, you've got all these big groups of people with their heads who are extremely well-respected. How much do they actually care about the, the king? Because if I wasn't a layman on the ground, would I care more about my clan leader? I don't know what they're called. My clan leader and then uh, the king? Or would I care about the king
3: more? Uh, it would depend what part of Scotland you were from, I suppose. The Highlanders, they follow their clan chiefs more than okay. anything. Um, but, I mean, we've sp- spoken about it before a little bit, but in England, it was much more set up that you just respected the king. Mm. The English kings had managed to sort of stamp that down the kind of Norman idea of you just respect the king. Um, but in Scotland the kings had to earn their respect because of all these powerful noblemen so if you know like most of these King Jameses, they have to deal with some clans at some point usually the Douglases or the, the Athols and all this stuff
0: right, To bring it back
3: to Game of Thrones again, is it a
0: little bit like where you've got, you know, Eddard Stark The he's uh, up in the north he's pretty much got the northerners behind him and you've got the king down in King's Landing, who kind of has the overall authority, but it is very tenuous. And it's one of those things that, depending on the king, can very easily shift, you know, depending on their ability to unite, I guess, the clans and the various different, you
3: know. Oh, totally, yeah. Um, And what kind of goes with that, that Game of Thrones thing is all the fantastic nicknames you get in Scottish history as well. So we had the Great Serpent. Um, there's someone called the Hound in Game of Thrones, isn't there? Yes. Um, well, at some point, I think it's during James II. One of his um, family are called the Wolf of Badenoch, who uh, just flies about the Highlands, just burning towns, and murdering people, and all this stuff. So Scotland's bandit country, basically. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think that th- this whole thing just
0: kind of. Uh, if you wanted to make a HBO show, the Stuarts, um, they'd probably say, "Well, that stuff never happened." But, you know, I mean, it's almost stranger than fiction. Yep. Some of the things you're talking about there, the kind of things that we see in. The likes of Game of Thrones. If you try to write it and say this is based on a true story, they tell you to clear off. Right. I think that uh, brings us to the end of uh, the history section this week. Uh, thank you very much, much Mr. Patson, for giving us a sense of kind of where the A-level history course has come from. And of course, if you turn up in in, uh, in September potentially uh, for A-level history at Boa, you will find out where it goes next. Um, okay, that brings us to the end of part three. We'll be back in a moment with part four. Welcome back to part four and it's time to pass over to Mr Lawton for um, a little bit of Geography Corner.
1: Yeah, so this week we're going to turn our attention to the continent of Africa and I've called it Explosive Africa, not because I'm going to talk about the explosive geopolitical situations that are occur in Africa, but I'm going to turn to the continent in terms of its physical landmass, split up into 54 countries by people, but as a continent itself, The processes that go on there are just as complex as the people that inhabit it. And I'm going to take us on a tour around three of the more interesting features of the physical geography of the African continent. Um, Probably the most famous thing that everybody ever talks about in Africa with its physical geography is the East African Rift Valley. Now, if we think about the planet being separated up into tectonic plates, the major ones are the ones that we study at GCSE at A level. There are actually probably over 70 different minor tectonic plates. But running down the east coast of Africa, going through countries like Ethiopia and Somalia, we have a divergent plate boundary. We have a plate boundary where the plates are moving apart from each other. They're going in opposite directions, essentially causing a tear down the east of a continent. Now, this stretches for over 3,000 kilometres. And the continent is moving apart geologically at quite a quick speed of around 5 to 7 millimetres a year. It's something that we'll never see, but in around 10 million years' time, um, Somalia and that part of the world uh, will suddenly find itself separate from the rest of the continent. Now, what does that do to the continent itself? What does it do to the landscape? Well, for us as people, it actually explains the reasons why um, East Africa dominates um, the Olympics in the running scene there. The people have been used to having these large, expansive, U-shaped valleys where on either side we have mountainous regions with numerous mountains going up to 7,000 feet. The people there have been used to, travers- to traversing these, establishing themselves at high altitudes and making themselves quite well adapted to being able to compete at long-distance running. So it feeds quite easily back into our modern-day society and the physical geography playing a key part there. Now, the East African Rift Valley opens up and we have volcanoes going down either side in a parallel sort of formation and linear formations there. And we also end up with the Great Lakes of Africa being formed as a result. As it's separated through there, there are these large chasms which naturally over time, start to fill up with water and eventually one day they will fill up with the sea and the ocean themselves as well uh, once the separation has been completed enough now that's the east african rift valley uh, in a nutshell but what this sort of kind of opens up to us is the possibility well africa we think of it as these ranging savannah grasslands or, or wide expansive deserts that we see In in films and on our TV programs. And we often look at the extremes in that case, but we never really picture that there are these towering mountains that are dangerous and very active volcanoes. Now, towards the west of Africa, well, slightly more towards the west of Africa from the East African Rift Valley, we actually find one of several lava lakes. I mean, several lava lakes that can be found around the world because these are open rifts in the ground open holes where you can see lava just bubbling away you can literally see into the hell of earth there they're absolutely spectacular i recommend you going on youtube and seeing some drone footage and hd quality of um of lava lakes just there churning through all day and the one that we find in Africa is found at the top of Mount Nirigongo. It's found towards the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, which itself is a war-torn country and um, actually is an extremely important tourist destination for the economy of the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda. Now, you can go and see these in other places as well. So, if you ever go to Hawaii, Kilauea is a, a lava lake. If you ever go to Nicaragua, uh, Masaya is. And if any of you are ever lucky enough to go to Antarctica, you actually find one there and you call these find in the uh, coldest place of the planet, Mount Erebus. Um, you can go to these places, and they're absolutely fascinating to actually see. Now, Never is more famous because it's taller, but you actually have Air to Ale, which is uh, in Ethiopia towards the east and the East African Rift Valley. But i've gone to Nirigongo because it's a case study that arrives in our year 12 course now this volcano is constantly stirring it's extremely active if you were to get a uh, laser beam thermometer and actually point it at um, the bottom of the caldera the cooking pot of this uh, volcano at the top you would see that the temperature can be anywhere between 900 degrees celsius and 1,200 degrees celsius at the bottom. It is living hell at the bottom and it's spewing out constantly gases that if you are in the wrong direction and the wind changes to be in that way you will die. You will inhale the toxic gases, you will collapse and you will not wake up from it unfortunately. Now that means the area around the volcano is also extremely interesting because of its activity. If you were a child growing up near the city of Goma, which is in the shadow of Narragonga, you would have been put through a very extensive education program from a very young age teaching you about the perils of ditches. Um, The landscape around the volcano is constantly shifting and we end up with ditches and little caverns that if you were a small child um, you could fall into and you would have to climb up the sides with quite a bit of energy to get to the top. Even full-grown people can fall into there, but it's the more aimless at children because they're the ones who could do it by accident, let's say chasing after a football or something that's falling into one. Now, um, at the bottom of these, if you don't know from your science lessons, uh, carbon dioxide is denser than air in general and the other properties. So because of the volcanic activity, the carbon dioxide, which can and come through little fissures, through little cracks in the ground. And these little chasms that have been created by the ground moving, these little ditches, actually create little stores of carbon dioxide, almost like carbon dioxide baths. So what can happen is children can fall into them, and if they aren't pulled out and retrieved, they can be asphyxiated, they can suffocate and die. And in the Goma Institute of Volcanic Studies, um, they actually demonstrate this by using goats. They take goats as the local livestock and they take them to these ditches and they will push them into the ditch. You will watch the goat suffocate and then they will drag it out and resuscitate it and bring it back to life. And usually students in year 12 find it the most scariest part when they actually give the goat resuscitation instead, but at least they're not being that cruel to animals and it's being used to hopefully save the many lives of the children. Now. That is one of the perils of um, Nirigongo. But when it erupted previously in the past, um, several times it's caused issues because the geology of the area is so tough and the ground is so sturdy that when you try and dig sewers and things that we need to create sanitary environments for us to live in, actually the biggest killer has not been the lava flow, all the gases. It's actually been diseases like cholera um, due to the inability to create toilets in the area Um, so all of that feeding back through again into real human consequences there so we've got the lava lakes and we've got the east african rift valley now i'm going to bring up something that we don't actually even cover at the a level course apart from one little one little notion of it but we don't do it in any depth whatsoever and that is the fact that some of these volcanic areas create deadly lakes um, they create lakes that are known as killer lakes, and there are several documentaries you can see on a National Geographic channel about them, and you can listen to some Americans go a bit OTT uh, uh, about them overall. And I'm going to start at uh, Lake Nyos, which is found in Western Cameroon, just slightly north of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And by slightly, because Africa is massive, I mean, it's actually quite a long way north. Um, but what happened there in 1986 was around 80 million cubic meters of co2 was released from a lake in the form of a deadly clear fog it was almost like a sci-fi film people woke up in the morning and there are only a handful of people who woke up when they heard other people suffocating in their sleep and they actually realized something was wrong and they were able to get out of the area or they luckily ended up just cowering on the ground and didn't realise that the fog passed over them, luckily. But um, this gas got released from the lake and it travelled to around 50 kilometres an hour and killed all animals and people within a 25-kilometre radius. And luckily, that was only 1,700 people. Still a tragedy, but it could have been a lot worse, as we'll find out later on. And we call this a limnic eruption. Volcanologists, people who study volcanoes, Certainly wanted to find out what had gone on because the volcanic activity in the area showed there was no sign of a volcanic eruption. There was no lava, there was no pyroclastic flow, the more famous of the gaseous eruptions that occur from volcanoes. But they eventually discovered that the lakes actually have underneath them, because of the volcanic activity in the area, CO2 filtering into the water. And water acts as a carbon store. It kind of gets absorbed into the water itself. Now, usually what happens is we have a nice summer and we have a nice winter. And in any lake, you will see that the water, if you're a really sad and scientist in this way, actually starts to circulate and rotate round. Now, that's really good because it means that the water that was at the bottom of the CO2 can rise to the top and then it can escape at the surface layer um, and uh, carbon sequestration starts to occur there. Now. If that was to occur, everything would be fine. Now, Cameroon's quite warm, so the water does not circulate. So at the bottom, you've got the pressure building up. The water's becoming carbonated, a little bit like a can of pop. It's carbonated water. And what happens as the pressure builds up there, all you need to do, like you shake up a can, if you then just put a little pinhole in it, it will erupt. It will vent. It will release. And they don't know exactly what caused it at Lake Nyos. But they've done some experiments, and the triggers could have been as simple as a heavy rainfall at the wrong direction, at the wrong moment with the wind blowing. It could have been a slight seismic activity, could have been a small earthquake that had stimulated it, but it will release the gases. And then that is what then flows above the water and unfortunately kills the people around Lake Nyos. Now, what have they done about this? They actually just Help to relieve the pressure of it, and they just put in pipes in this area to um, release the gases, and hopefully it will never happen again. And the Cameroonian government have dealt with that quite well. Um, but there is a more devastating uh, thing on the horizon. Geographers are often considered those who talk about tragedy and doom that's looming. We talk about unsustainability and talking about um, the world going to parts. Well, there is a lake called Lake Kivu, which is in between the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda lying very close to nirigongo And um, this lake has had archaeological studies done around the outside of it. They've dug into the ground and discovered that cyclically, on cycles, that there have actually been mass extinctions around the outside of the lake. They didn't understand why before. They thought it could have been because of a climatic change. Actually, it was because of these limnic eruptions, the gases actually being released. Now this lake is almost three times the size of Lake Nyos. It's got on the banks of it alone um, two million people living in cities. Uh, this is a very big issue when the scientific community then found out what these limnic eruptions actually were and that this could happen any day with a slight disturbance. If Nirgunga erupted in the wrong way, it could stir the lake and this gas could be released. So what they've actually done is they've Um, built a power plant to tap into the gases that are at the bottom. And they also discovered that methane was down there as well, which is even better because it's even stronger than CO2 to burn. And Rwanda's been able to tap into that for some sustainable electricity uh, and uh, to power the local communities, which in the country at the time, uh, they didn't have a very good infrastructure around electricity. So this limnic eruption, terrifying as it is, and the way that it affected Lake Nyos in Cameroon, Um, It's actually turned into something that could be quite profitable in the future for Lake Kivu in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda. So when we think about Africa, we often think about the tragedies from a human consequence and the extremes of the environment, the rainforest and the desert. But we often don't consider the explosive nature of Africa and the volcanic activity that experiences there.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Lawton. Uh, appreciating the, uh, the shout-outs for the Democratic Republic of Congo. Always great to return to the scene of one of my greatest victories. The incident around the lake in Cameroon, did you say when, when that was?
1: Yeah, in Nyos was 1986,
0: yeah. Okay, so not, not that long ago. And it was, um, yeah, and like you say, that this, there's always this potential. And there could be, obviously, other places like this that you just don't know, right? I mean, where there's just this potential threat.
1: Yeah, I believe as a result of this, uh, the United States Geological Survey, who kind of take the lead on these things as Americans like to, uh, went and explored the lake uh, because it was seen as kind of a mystery at the time when it it occurred. Um, And the people who were there were obviously horrified. The ones who survived didn't outrun the cloud. They were just lucky in the way that they were probably panicky and crying. Maybe the body just didn't take in as much CO2 at the time. And they woke up to find all family members, all the farm animals, just just lying on the ground, asphyxiated, uh, having died from not having any oxygen supply. And um, yeah, the USGS came in and found out what these limnic eruptions were, were able to better define them, uh, look at what could stimulate them. And then they went, obviously, you're looking back at their data, at other lakes that they had experienced before, and suddenly realised that there are thousands of these lakes around the world, that this could potentially happen. And probably the biggest one that was the biggest issue wasn't too far away, and that was Lake Kivu, um, with so many people, two million people living close by. That's the city of Birmingham being exposed to the potential threat of a lake just spewing out deadly gases at any moment.
0: And these places um, can be found across the world?
1: Yeah, these, uh, these lakes can be found anywhere. Yeah? Anywhere where there's volcanic activity taking place near the surface. And um, Technically, when we go to Iceland and we go and see the geysers and places like that, it could happen there, but it's it's not the same sort of context and scenario for it to happen. I mean, we go past geysers all the time there, which are releasing the same gases, but it's just the nature of these mean deep lakes, and then inside there, the CO2 can build up and carbonate at the bottom, creating this pressure building up over time. Do you put down your risk assessment? Yes, every year, yeah.
2: Also I think our listeners are wondering the same,
1: Um, how do you resuscitate a goat? Um, They uh, do it to stay alive and uh, they uh, put the hands on the chest uh, like uh, Vinnie Jones once showed us and uh, they actually did some mouth-to-mouth in the actual uh, video. Fantastic, absolutely great. Thank you.
0: So on that bombshell I think it's time to leave behind Geography Corner and shift our focus to a little bit more geography with the 90-second challenge. How long do we have? How long do we have? Ninety. How long do we have? Ninety. How long do we need? 90. How long do we need? 90. How, do we need? 90. Ninety. How long do we have? How long do we have? Ninety seconds. Ninety seconds. 90 what a seconds. challenge! What a challenge! Right, the 90-second challenge this week sees uh, last week's runaway, uh, Mr. DeSalvo, <laughs> in the hot seat. Um, Mr. Lawton picked on him specifically uh, because uh, he'd been running scared. Um, so, Mr. Lawton, could you just, uh, without obviously giving anything away, um, just remind uh, us what it is that Mr. DeSalvo has to talk about for 90 seconds.
1: Yeah, so Mr. DeSalvo is going to talk about one of the most well-known areas of geography that even people who don't study geography as a course uh, will have all been made aware of. And its name is anthropogenic climate change.
0: So no pressure, Mr. DeSalvo. So Mr. DeSalvo, how are you feeling?
2: Yeah, I feel that um I'm not as nervous, I suppose, as I was with the Greyfriars barbie, <laughs> you know, situation. Um, but I'm not sure whether Mr. Lawton's been a bit too kind or whether what our research is actually too sort of little or too simple. It seemed we, rather straightforward.
0: We shall we shall find out. Uh, nothing can be as complex and as challenging. As Dr. Mrs. P. Vandertramp, but there we are. Yes. Um, um, Mr. DeSalvo, you have ninety seconds to talk about anthropogenic climate change. Starting now. Okay. So um, we talked about
2: we talk about anthropogenic climate change when it's the human activities that affect nature. So as we know, in the history of the world, you know, the climate has changed uh, loads of times. And, you know, there's been ice ages, you know, warming trends and all of that. Um, But we've now um, become more aware that we've entered a new period of um, warming um, called climate change that, you know, is partly due to human um, sort of intervention and basically when Climate change is the fault of human beings. We talked about anthropogenic climate change. So whilst there are things that we don't um, have power on, uh, we do have sort of an influence on climate change when we talk about um, greenhouses' um, effects. Because, um, for example, uh, you know, we burn, um, we increase the greenhouse's gas, sorry, like carbon dioxide by burning fossil fuels as we drive, we use our heating, powering our industries. Um, we also uh, cut forests down, which will have an effect, and also as because of the overpopulation. So basically, all it is is human activity um, having an effect on climate,
0: I would say. Okay, your time is up. Um, Mr. Lawton, the verdict?
1: Yeah, it was uh, exactly the right area that you should have been talking about. Obviously, humans causing climate change. Uh, Climate change occurs naturally as well, uh, which people often forget. And um, yeah, you've touched on some of the, the major causes of it. I'm surprised you didn't drop in Greta big who is one of your one of your favorite people in the world mr DeSalle. I'm surprised you didn't mention yes. here and there she is a big advocate of changing it and uh, yeah we've entered this period in our planet called uh, well what most scientists are now calling the Anthropocene. we've uh, change the planet that much that we've gone from a, a geological period that was defined by the human systems to now what seems to be being defined by the human influence upon those systems indeed and uh, yeah uh, you included some of the big ones and there. shame that we were missing a few factoids but it was a uh, pretty good
0: well done Mr DiSalvo. Um I think this week benefited from not having kind of um, sort of uh, secret natty tendencies lurking like last week's 90 second challenge Um, Tune in to episode 7 to uh, find out more about that. Mr DeSalvo, um, do you have a new 90 second challenge lined up ready for us? So for
2: the next 90 second challenge, I will ask Mr Patterson to explain to us what the subjunctive is not gonna ask to explain in um, you know how it works in french or in spanish but as our kids have to deal with this um concept when they study the foreign language how would you explain the subjunctive what is it in english please fantastic
0: i'll smash that one brilliant <laughs> Mr. Patterson is brimming, brimming with confidence uh, as ever. Um, okay, so that brings us to a close of another 90-second challenge. We look forward to Mr. Patterson's challenge next week. How long do we have? How long do we have? Ninety. How long do we need? How, How long do we need? 90. How, do we need? 90. Ninety. How long do we have? How long do we have? Ninety seconds. Ninety seconds. What 90. a challenge! What a challenge! What a challenge. And that brings us to an end to part four we'll return in just a few seconds with part five welcome back to part five it's my favorite time of the week it's language liaison uh, the opportunity to talk to mr DeSalvo about all things continental um so mr de salvo what have you got in store for us this week
2: hi everybody um i know i spoke about TV series a while ago, and I was a bit reluctant to get into films. um But I know, obviously, with half term approaching, and you guys running out of um you know stuff to watch on Netflix, I talk about a couple of films that are a bit more iconic for you know the French and Spanish film making industry. And on that note, I would like to um say because dubbing was mentioned earlier on by Mr. Lawton about the mysterious country, um, dubbing is a very you know important in film industry in both spain and france and it's also one of the reasons why a lot of people from spain and from france do not speak english um, particularly well and t- unless they have studied it properly that's because everything is dubbed and most things are dubbed which you know many other countries isn't quite the case But I think in France and Spain they're a bit luckier than the the polls because there's more than one person dubbing, (laughs) Uh, and certainly in Italy it's always the same people dubbing the same actor, so you know to create consistency. Anyway, I'm going to start. I've got four Spanish films and three french ones and um, i'm going to start with the spanish ones the first one is called pan's labyrinth i don't know if you've ever come across any of them um i absolutely um didn't get it um but it is apparently an iconic you know film and maybe i should watch it again in you know uh, after a few years it is about um you know a girl who's fascinated by fairy tales and it is set in 1944 and um, so during obviously World war ii um but this girl who is fascinated by fairy tales again is sent along with a pregnant mother uh, to live with a new stepfather and um, so slightly different you know from say Snow white um but the father is a ruthless captain of the spanish army um and during the night this girl meets a fairy who um takes her to an old Fawn, is that even a word f-a-u-n faun uh, in the center of the labyrinth and he tells her that she's the princess uh, but she must prove her royalty by surviving three gruesome um tasks um, um and yeah only that way she can prove to be you know the princess and uh, meet her real father who is the king um the Despite me not quite liking the film, um, the general consensus is that it's a bit of an Alice in Wonderland for grown-ups, which also contains the horrors of both reality and uh, fantasy. So there you go, that's the first film to watch next week. Then the second one I want to talk about is called um, All About My Mother, and the director is Pedro Almodóvar, who is one of my favourite Spanish directors. His films tend to be um, quite intense and very um, controversial, and a lot of the time they're also not suitable for the youngest audience as such so please check that you guys can watch it before you go ahead um in um, all about my mother um just briefly it's a single mother and um, Who's based in Madrid, and unfortunately, she witnesses the death of a 17 year old son. Uh, he's basically about to run to seek um, an actress's autograph, but um, he dies. I think he gets run over pretty much. Um, but the mother then decides to go to Barcelona to find the lad's father. But the lad's father, is a transgender woman um, named Lola, um, who doesn't even know that she had a child. Um, So I don't want to say too much about it, but in the end, this film, because of the amount of women and transgender women who are involved and they actually get together to spend a lot of time supporting each other, becomes, um, you know a movie that redefines family values, and um, it kind of reminds the audience of the power of sisterhood. Um, So it's quite interesting from a point of view of like the female uh, figure. Um, another one that I've chosen for the Spanish films is called Wild Tales in English. And it's not actually a film, but it's an anthology of standalone um, sort of shorts. Uh, But each short explores um, human behaviour under distress. Um, The thing about this film is that um, it was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film in 2014, and it also um, has been, um, sorry, it got an award for being the Best Spanish Language Foreign Film. So I would recommend it, perhaps, as we watch these films, even if they are in you know in English you keep the subtitles and see whether you can grasp some of the language Um I quite like I find it fascinating you know to see how humans behave in you know distressed and um, well distressing sorry situations and the last one is actually a mute sorry a silent movie I should say um, called Blancanieres which is actually Snow White and um, it was filmed in 2012 so it's a bit unusual that it was a you know, quiet, silent, sorry, movie. Um and again, you know, on the notes of the first one that I mentioned, you know, we've got a bit of a fairy tale there. Um however, the movie is um kind of was nominated for the Oscars but didn't win one, um, talks about uh, the daughter of a rich and famous bullfighter. Um, But the problem is that the bullfighter has an accident with a bull and he becomes physically handicapped and then becomes dependent on um, a nurse who is basically the evil witch who then takes advantage of him. And um, the ending also represents a bit of a twist on the you know, more classical fairy tale that we probably know. Um, so it provides a more kind of adult and realistic side to the story. So and that's for you know some inspiration for the Spanish films. I've got three for French. Uh, I think I'll start with the most famous one probably here in the UK, which is Amelie. Uh, I don't know if any one of you has watched, famous also for the soundtrack. I shall try and play some of those tunes on the piano at some point myself. Um, But Amelie is a fan for comedy, really. Um, And, you know, there's some genuinity about this girl, and she's quite naive as well. Uh, But she discreetly orchestrates the lives of the people around her. Um, So in such a way that she creates a world um, of her own making. And, uh, um, you know, it is shot in Paris. It shows really the, you know, the charm and the mystery of, you know, modern day Paris as well, especially the quarter of uh, Montmartre and all of the, you know, um, very picturesque um, places that we probably all know about in uh, Paris. Um, Yeah, and Amelie herself, she's a person who loves people, but quite can't bring yourself to joining them. So um, yeah, it's a bit of a, um, a funny, you know, sort of comedy in some way, but um, it also highlights some, um, let's say struggles that this woman has. The second film is called Tomboy. And um, it's about gender identity and uh, in the modern sense. So uh, the Main character is an androgynous-looking kid um, called Lore, um, who's given a blank slate because um, her family uh, moves to a new housing block where nobody knows, obviously, the family, and um, basically, Lore decides to, um, you know, dress as a girl, and no one really knows that she is um, a boy, um, and. She keeps this well, her anatomy as a secret. Um, and by doing so, but by doing also well, getting involved in things in the new life, she reveals volumes of truth um regarding how little um sort of um gender and identity sorry how little um the anatomy in itself matters when it comes to um identity so an interesting one to watch and the last one which you might have heard of is les Intouchables, or the Intouchables. um it's normally studied at a level um, but it's a story of a kind of an unusual friendship um, between two men. And one is extremely wealthy um, and he's a quadriplegic uh, and he owns a luxurious hotel, sort of penthouse almost. Um, but they're interviewing because the guy needs some um, a carer. And of all the people who turn up to the interview, there's this one called Driss, who has no ambition at all to get hired and only goes to um, have... His um, paperwork for his welfare benefits signed so that he can prove that he's looking for work. But surprisingly, the next day he um, actually gets the job. And despite being uninterested at all and um, his lack of experience, he does a very good job caring for Philip, who is the quadriplegic man. And um, he's got some unconventional methods, etc. But, um, you know, the whole sort of story centers around them building a friendship um and it's all done in a sort of a flashback way so yeah um those are my recommendations So get some popcorn on
1: just just wondering about if like so i'm learning a language and let's say it was spanish and i wanted to listen to the film in spanish and read the subtitle so i can kind of have my brain trying e- easing through the english translation a little bit so i'm listening to it in yeah. spanish and it just getting my ear used to it when the films are done in french and spanish like when they're done in english they're done in a very generic english accent like even the yorkshire accent in 90% of films is made quite quite straightforward they don't attack the words in the way uh, somebody in yorkshire would they would maybe do it for let's say a couple of words and then every other word actually is in very much queen's english but with maybe a deeper tone to it um do they do that in spanish and french films as well do they do they have like a general sort of like Queen's spanish if you want to say
2: there's so
1: unless there are some cultural references that
2: are somehow translated into the, say, the receiving culture, then it tends to be, I guess, dubbed in the most straightforward, like French or Spanish. But say, if you are, if in the original version there is a particular accent, then the French will tend to also, you know, give the French character a French accent of somewhere in France. I mean, I can only think, I know it's not French or Spanish, but I'm thinking of watching The Simpsons in Italian myself when I was younger. And whenever there was the, um, this, the guy who's Ginger in The Simpsons, the um, guy at the school, I can't ever remember his name. Oh, Brand really.
1: Ground, yeah, <laughs> Scottish guy. Yeah.
2: So okay, so he's Scottish. Yeah, exactly. Um, he's given a Sardinian accent in Italian, and unfortunately, you know, although it's probably not politically correct, Sardinia being the most rural region of Italy is the one with the simplest, you know, sort of people. If that's something I'm allowed to say, um, so I think there's always going to be some, um, you know, try well attempts to. Convey some of these differences language wise. Well, um, I'm,
1: I'm r- particularly wondering though if it's a like, so if I was watching, because you know, I've been watching Elite on a uh, yeah, just done in Spanish, um, on my Netflix, yeah, yeah, on your <laughs> Netflix as well, like, coincidentally. But um, if I'm watching that and it's done in <laughs> Spanish, well, they I know they're going to a posh private school in that show, but if it was like actually originally a Spanish speaking program, would they gravitate towards a, a nice? clean-cut accent like they do in most English things. I
2: think they would, but also don't forget that in um, Spain, you do not have the same accents as you have in the UK. You know, although pronunciation might vary from one region to another, they tend to often use their own um, official languages from each region. So it might... You know, they'll have to go for Castellano, which is the Spanish we teach. Um, But, you know, you've also got the Catalan, you've got, you know, all of the other sort of languages. Um, So I think they have to stick to the one that everybody would be able to access. Um, But there may be variations in pronunciation and accents. Um, But yeah, I would think a standard version would be the main. Um, But coming back to you trying to learn a bit of Spanish and um, through films or tv series and they always suggest that the first thing to do actually is to watch a series you've already watched into the foreign language so that you're already familiar with the content so reading the subtitles doesn't slow down the understanding of the actual well of the
0: action i was going to ask as well um and i guess this is something mr Salva, you had to experience more just i guess just because of the sheer weight the the, the number of uh, you know american and uh you know british bo- movies and tv shows you know do you guys prefer to watch something dubbed or or subtitled do you find as in terms of do you find the dubbing can take you out of the moment sometimes and do you find that yourself mr disalvo if you're watching like the Simpsons, do you find the dubbing is actually it, it almost disconnects you from it slightly because you know that's not their true voice if that's some you know
2: um until i could watch something in the original language and I knew no different in a way. I never particularly um, paid attention to the fact that there was no sort of correspondence between the you know, lips movement and the sound. Um, dubbing is a clever industry and I've sort of suggested to some of our students who are more linguistically um, you know inclined to perhaps investigate this as a future option especially because it goes hand in hand with acting and um, but there's a lot to do with dabbing that isn't pure translation but it has to do with the length of the you know the sentence as well you can't translate 100 percent correctly if that makes sense if then the actor or actress is still talking and then the sentence in say spanish has ended or the other way around and so it's um quite you know complicated um thing to do um but i to answer your question i now if i go back home for example and i watch italian tv um, he really does bother me th- it's dubbed and a lot of the time i actually try to do some lip reading um just to see um whether you know i'm guessing that what they're saying is correct um you know compared to what i see um but i think a lot of you know spanish people french people italian people for example they they are so accustomed to it because they've experienced it since childhood that they don't pay as much attention.
3: So uh,
0: thank you very much, Mr Salvo, for the kind of uh, suggestions and ideas for what to look out for um, over half term, potentially to get your language fixed. Um, but I was going to ask Mr Patterson and Mr Lawton as well. Um, have you got any uh, TV shows, films that are in the French and Spanish language that you find particularly noteworthy,
3: things that you've enjoyed in the past that you maybe recommend? Uh, I really loved uh, well, so there's a movie called Shea, Uh, it's all about Shea Guevara, Um, it's got Benicio del Toro plays the the title role Um, it's really amazing Uh, it's in two parts though and I thought the first part was really brilliant all about the sort of Cuban revolution and stuff, Uh, and then I thought the second part was a wee bit dry but that might be because I watched them one after the other so when you're like sort of fifth hour of subtitles, I was kinda losing focus a little bit. But yeah, She Part One. It's on Amazon Prime, just to give Jeff Bezos a bit more money.
0: To extend that actually because I was going to chip in and mention this in a moment, but actually it's relevant. Um The Motorcycle Diaries as well, which is an absolutely lovely film, which is about the young Shea Guevara, um, when he's growing up in South America, before he becomes the Che Guevara essentially, the revolutionary that we kind of know and see adorned on posters and t-shirts today. Yeah, so this is about him going on a road trip with his friend when he's like deciding whether or not he wants to become a doctor, which is what his whole family kind of want him to do. Um, and uh, he goes on a road trip around South America and he kind of sees a different side of the world and it starts to kind of shape his ideals and possibly influence him to become the man that he later becomes. That's a, that's a wonderful film. Uh, I was going to mention Amelie as well before Mr. DeSalvo did as a a classic and also Asterix and Obelix but you know that's just for different different reasons. Um, Mr. Lawton?
1: I haven't really watched any films in particular TV shows um, and I think uh, I don't don't know whether this is because of Netflix having to go towards their Mexican audience maybe, their Hispanic heritage inside the USA, but it's a massive market for them. And I've obviously watched uh, Casa del Papal, which is um, Money Heist, uh, which has been now fully dubbed in English. And I recently watched Delete, which is kind of like, I would imagine, like a, it's like a skin sort of equivalent, but for Spanish in a posh uh, private school and all of that. But interesting about the dubbing, and I uh, watch it with, it dubbed in English, and then the translation underneath um, as well, and the subtitles. And sometimes it doesn't go together at all. And there was this one particular scene, and uh, Mr. Axton may edit this out in a second, but I will go ahead and say it now, It involves some negative words about a character. And um, I remember reading, listening and reading it, and thinking, God, those are completely different words. And then I thought, I'll go and listen back to it, in Spanish, because I was trying to learn some Spanish a little bit, so I was like, "I wonder what they say there." And they actually go on there and they say uh, "bastardos," bastards, uh, in other words, uh, there. Um, which that's what they said was said in Spanish. Yet the subtitle said um, that they were a young cat. Um, they were a young cat, and yet the dubbing said that they were an absolute idiot. Now, to me, in English, those three things have different sort of attacks to them in terms of an insult. And yet the experience, therefore, of that scene is completely different. So being able to listen to that in the original language and appreciate it, I think, is vital.
3: I've just thought of one last one, speaking of dubbing incidents. um, There's a Will Ferrell comedy called Casa de Padre, um, which is Mm -hmm. all in Spanish. Um, But quite often the sort of running joke is that the subtitles are completely different. To what's going on in the scene? Uh, well worth a watch. Uh, it might be quite rude. I can't remember, but um, well worth a watch. Casa de mi padre.
0: Yeah, it's uh, if it's uh, if it's not if it's not appropriate, blame Mr. Patterson. <laughs> we had nothing to do with it. So that brings us to the end of uh, language liaisons, and uh, the end of another thrilling, informative, educational, heartwarming episode of the HD lockdown pod. All it's left for me to do is to say farewell. To Mr. DeSalvo,
2: bye bye. I have a lovely half term, everybody.
0: I'm sure. I'm sure they will. Uh, Mr. Patterson, cheerio. See you later. So long. And uh, Mr. Lawton, goodbye. Bye. Bye, folks. Stay safe. Stay alert. Look after yourselves.